difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. And Keith Phipps. Our producer Genevieve was tragically set upon by a herd of wild corgis in between this episode and last episode, and she's currently recovering the hospital, but she uploaded footage of the stampede to Instagram, and it's real adorable, so we're all considering this a win in the humanity versus nature column. <laughs> uh, speaking of humanity versus nature... On last week's episode, we discussed Werner Herzog's 2005 documentary Grizzly Man, which in large part consists of Herzog's edit of the 100-plus hour footage library that nature activist Timothy Treadwell left behind, documenting the 13 summers he spent among bears in an Alaskan nature preserve before one of them killed and ate him and his girlfriend Amy. Throughout the archival footage, Treadwell repeatedly points out that what he's doing is lethally dangerous, that the bears could easily kill him, and that if he dies among them in the wild, he'll consider it a fulfilling life. But he also openly believes he's cracked the code to operating around bears and that he's safe from them because he, unlike others, knows how to treat them and respond to them. The similarly obsessed eco-explorers at the center of the documentary of Fire of Love also periodically brought up the chances of dying while carrying out their hobby. But they seemed much less delusional about the idea that they'd learned to live safely with nature and didn't face the same kind of risks as other people. Geochemist Katia Croft and her husband, geologist Maurice Croft, traveled around the world studying volcanoes up close, shooting staggering footage of lava flows and active eruptions, and turning them into books and films meant to both educate the public and fund their further freelance travels around the world. Like Treadwell, the Crofts periodically talk to cameras about the likelihood that they'll die at their work, and how they'll see it as fulfilling and natural when it finally happens. And also like Treadwell, they did eventually die at their task. Narrated by filmmaker and author Miranda July, with poetic animated insertions and plenty of editorializing from director Sarah Dosa and three co-writers, Fire of Love is much more stylized than Grizzly Man, but it still feels like a remarkably close companion piece, similarly about obsession and fatalism, about an amateur interest becoming a full-time passion, and about people who felt that the most important thing in the world was bringing that passion to others. We'll take a look after this break. This is Katya, and this is Maurice. <laughs> Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos, and a million questions. Alone, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. They meet on a blind date at a cafe. From here on out, life will only be volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. In this world lived a fire. And in this fire, two lovers found a home. So, uh, Fire of Love. Pretty good conversational match for Grizzly Man, huh? Yeah, when I saw this film quote-unquote, at Sundance remotely. I, Crystal Lamb is the first thing I thought of. And it's just, you know, the, the, it's a similar story, both superficially, and then when you get into the film itself, the connections are, are pretty, are pretty strong. Well, what do you think about the film as a whole? I like this film quite a bit, but I also feel like I learn, I, I know less about volcanoes 
after watching it than before <laughs> watching it because it's not really interested in the science of it. And it's not as interested in the craft's personalities as it probably should be. But because I don't feel like I got to know them as people all that well either. But the footage is incredible. And the poetic, you know, sort of the lyrical approach to it all, it ultimately worked for me. You know, just just the pairing of, of images and those observations and the the sort of flow of the of the story, you know, telling the story of their lives. It, it worked on me. I, I had some reservations about this film, but I did, re, you know, both times I've seen it twice now, and both times I've, I've, I've really enjoyed watching it. And I sort of like wished I was watching it on the big screen, which I have not had the opportunity to do. But that, that the, the scene, the volcano scenes are, are quite <laughs> ridiculously uh, stunning. Yeah, I saw this film twice as well. I saw it at a film festival that took place for real, uh, the True False festival uh and i saw it in their largest theater so I, I did have that experience and then i saw it again on my computer here for <laughs> review or for this uh, podcast and uh weirdly enough i i, I appreciated it more the second time than than the first i had pretty i had my reservations about it were much stronger the first time than the second time without completely going away and i think you mentioned some of them i mean one is that i i don't know what we really learn about volcanoes so for well scott there, there are red volcanoes and gray volcanoes that, there are, that much i can tell there's you. the dangerous ones and the not dangerous ones so i knew that so i know if i encounter uh, that if i see a lava flow it's going to be more predictable a little more like a river uh but the gray ones i gotta stay away from right stay away from yeah. gray. if it's gray stay away that's my, that'll be my motto. <laughs> if it's if it's red feel free to tread i don't know no. <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I like that that's you got further than i would wow. i was gonna i was i was gonna just like abandon the rhyme scheme and just say uh go pet it because <laughs> there there is uh there is quite a bit of footage here of katya like petting volcanic flow uh, yeah. in in shots that really super remind me of timothy treadwell petting bear poop uh, there's a lovingness about the way she engages with the like the the kind of like twisted rock that volcanoes leave behind and we get to see a lot of her like up close and personal just very clearly admiring rock formations which is pretty interesting i mean one of the things that kind of turned me off about the movie and again not as much the second time is that the conceit of it is a little on the cute side you know i mean having miranda july as the narrator is certainly one of the things and some of the individual lines of of narration are uh, there's just a little bit too much spin on the ball you know the, the metaphor of volcanic eruption eruption and in volcanoes is is being about passion you know in that being a reflection of the of this personal relationship between the crafts and their devotion to each other again it, it feels like a little bit tidy to me but it is still incredible i mean like you can't deny the images that you do see and how compelling they are you know the variety of the of the footage that you you get and then ultimately the power of what they're trying to do i mean when it gets to that gets around to you know the human tragedy of uh, of volcanoes and, and and them trying to use their footage to you know warn officials of of, of these dangers and evacuating areas and 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 um you know being persuasive in one uh, instance and being tragically not persuasive in another, all that I appreciated quite a bit. But what did you think, Tasha? 
I mean, I'm in the same boat. I, mm-hmm. Keith kind of called it out. Like, I really wish that I felt like I learned more um, from this film. And I think that that's kind of a fatal flaw in a movie that's as much as about two people wanting to educate the public as it is about anything else. Yeah. The fact that this movie is like, I did not care for the narration. Yeah. I I'm a little up and down on Miranda July as an author and filmmaker, but I'm mostly like a lot more positive on her than some people are. She does kind of lean a little on the twee side. The fact that this movie comes across in places as as twee or overly sentimentalized, it like isn't her fault. She's she's not the person writing the script that she's reading here. But some of the stuff about how the language of understanding is also the language of love as an explanation for science uh, strikes me as like overly pat and sentimental in a place where we could have used like real facts. I, I thought the stuff about what makes a volcano red versus gray and why one is more dangerous than the other was really interesting. And I yeah. would have liked more insights like that. The fact also, I, that were, were they good at their job? I couldn't even tell by the end of it. I'm not really sure what their actual study was. I mean, either, there were books you know? that were written. Uh, sure. Right? I mean, I, like, that's what I mean. Like there's just, I think a, a choice that is being made here to, de-emphasize the you know the sort of egghead nature of being a scientist to in order to focus on you know the 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 visceral qualities the visceral qualities of these incredibly powerful you know events in the footage that we get of them and then also of this relationship that was sort of built around this this passion i mean that's and i get it as a movie watcher and as an appreciator of of storytelling there's juice in that you know there's not there's not a lot of juice in learning in great detail how volcanoes work and you know get, getting uh, you know getting sidetracked into the development of tectonic plate theory and like i mean like i can get i can see how he get really f- deep in the in we in the weeds but this kind of goes a little bit too far in the other direction and in you know and if miranda july miranda july may not have written this narration but hiring her i mean that's that is as they say a choice <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i mean a little on the twee side is a very funny way to describe her in july she's a, a, an absolute ton on the twee side uh and i'm an admirer as well but it is it's a choice and i think it it, it i don't think it serves the film as well as it could though, though, though again it was another element of the film that i really rejected much more strongly the first time around the second for some reason i don't know i'm not sure why well, I mean, I think with anything like that, there's just a, a sense of knowing what it is the second time. You're not expecting something that you didn't get. And like, I've only seen the film the once. And uh, I was not necessarily I didn't walk in expecting like a, an hour and a half treaties on how how is volcano formed. But I do think that there's an irony in talking this much about people who wanted to educate the public about volcanoes and not in any way educating the public about volcanoes in the process. Yes. Like their footage is spectacular. And like everybody else here, I really wonder what it would look like on the big screen because it's so startling. But I had to go elsewhere. I had to like read up on on their lives and work to find out that one of the things that they were considered innovators in, like one of the one of the reasons that a couple of like freelance volcano chasers who just ran around the world like looking at the the most recent volcanoes were regarded as such experts in the field is because Katya was kind of a daredevil when it came to volcanoes. Like she went up closer to them 
than was done. You know, she she broke the rules like Timothy Treadwell. She went up close and she got these spectacular images that other people didn't get. And it carved out a space for the two of them to, you know, to create these films and books and and become seen as experts in the field. Like Keith, I wanted to know like how others saw them and not in a a romantic touchy feely from the outside did their relationship look strong kind of way but were they considered experts in the field in a meaningful way what did they discover what what were they researching we see so much of you know here's one or the other of them with a tube or a device measuring something but we never really find out what they're studying like what they care about in volcanoes like we get a lot of quotes about how they think they're gonna die doing this and they don't mind or how they want to go together or like what a passion this is for them but we never really get a sense of like i just once i wanted to hear one of them talk about like the geology or the geochemistry that fascinated them in volcanoes something that didn't feel fluffy and romantic that felt like an insight into into their world into volcanoes as they saw them i was gonna say i would not float on an, uh, an acid lake oh my gosh uh, <laughs> i just wouldn't yeah, i think it's a bad sequence. idea that wasn't wow that wasn't really incredible stuff there, I would have loved just a little bit of the chemistry that meant they could spend three hours floating on an acid lake when they tried to put a, a device, like a measurement device in the acid lake and it ate through their steel cable. Like, wh- how did they manage in a, in a flimsy little boat? Why, why didn't the fumes from floating in acid overcome them? I'm sure there are scientific answers to all of that. But the film just really kind of overemphasizes, here they are in an acid lake. Boy, that sure is weird that they're in mm. an acid lake. I mean, that's the movies. <laughs> that's Again, there's the juice is, is, is being able to see that footage, not being able to necessarily you know, understand it in a, in a deeper, more you know, scientifically detailed way. So, I mean, could we talk, I mean, in terms of the craft's impact on science, I mean, is it... You couldn't necessarily compare them to like Jacques Cousteau in, I mean, they, 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 there was like, it it wouldn't be like the relationship, it wouldn't be comparable to say the relationship, the difference between Jacques Cousteau and marine biologists. I mean, they, they, the crafts were scientists, right? I mean, they did, I mean, they were useful in terms of actually collecting data, maybe. I don't know. I mean, what did you find, Tasha? That is something that in at least the things that I read, I did not find a clear answer to the the focus on them is on the media that they appeared in the media that they produced and on their deaths because it's sensationalist. Yeah. You know, when you when you have people who say we're probably going to die doing the thing we love and then they die doing the thing they love. Like, yeah, understandably, there's a, a desire to romanticize that or to obsess over it a little bit. We're so, especially in America, we're so focused on pretending that death doesn't exist or like finding ways to romanticize it that, you know, we get a little obsessive when it happens, uh, much less when somebody predicts it. So like in in layman's areas, there just isn't enough about that kind of thing. And, And again, that's something that I think should be in this film. One of the things that I found really missing was like they they kind of say early on that they're they're just freelancers but then at the same time you have governments calling them up and saying we've got a an eruption imminent like come here as quickly as you can Mm -hmm. and they drop everything and, and fly around the world it's intimated that they 
did it all on their own dime, you know, that they entirely funded what really sounds like a hobby, but a hobby for scientists out of the books and films that they created. Mm. But at the same time, it seems like they were consultants for governments. Like, I would have loved to have known more about what they achieved that made like other people want to reach out to them and invite them to other countries to settle down for months on end to watch one volcano or another. Like the finances of it is interesting. The science of it is interesting. The politics of it is extremely interesting. Yeah. And we just don't get almost any of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I just think that's just the conceit of the movie is to kind of not be wonky about any of that stuff. You know, and I think, I think maybe the three of us are, <laughs> You know, we cr- we maybe we crave a certain amount of wonkiness that the film is just determined not to not kind of deliver. Though I think you can say, I think you know, in a very broad sense. I mean, when the film really is becomes powerful to me is when one terrible human tragedy leads to the prevention of another terrible human tragedy, where where mm. you can see the result of the footage that the crafts have shot and it's great footage. I mean, footage that nobody else has the guts or the craziness to film, you know, to, to give you this very up close look at the destructive power of volcanoes. You know, if you can put that together in a persuasive way as filmmakers, um, I mean, that's going to come across, that's going to make an impression on public officials that data won't. Uh, because people don't really respond to data, it puts them to sleep, you know, and they they can't really they can't really visualize the danger uh, that that something like this might pose for you know the, the villages at the foot of this of these mountains. So um, that part of the film is re- really kind of the most powerful to me, you know, being able to kind of say at a certain point that yeah, lives were saved as a result of our work. You know, I mean, that's that's a pretty solid reason to do work. Yeah, that's a I mean, it's a strong outcome. And it's also just, you know, when they when they first start talking about uh, advising a government and this is going to happen and you need to evacuate and they say, now we're good. Uh, That's going to be too costly. I, of course, immediately go to to the mayor in Jaws. You know, that just there's just that feeling of, you know, public officials saying that, you know, this is this is going to be a lot of trouble or a lot of expense. So we're not going to do it. And then tens of thousands of people die as a result uh which doesn't happen in jaws but you get my point yeah i mean um, it never so, it, it, it never happens in the real world when when uh <laughs> public officials I- ignore existential threats to our <laughs> proposed by nature but yeah the idea of uh, being able to provide a a visual narrative that combats that very real response that very natural response it, it is it is compelling it is compelling as a, an indication of what they achieved i guess the maybe most cynical part of me is concerned that the reason this movie glosses over so much of like what they what they discovered or what they accomplished apart from that is maybe a fear that they didn't you know, that they weren't uh, like considered that outstanding in the field or like that innovative or, you know, I, I don't I don't know. Did they did they write papers? Did they were they peer reviewed like all of the stuff that's uh, like research science cares about? I just I feel like the movie should say something about that if there's something to, to be said. And if it doesn't, it is that indicative of something. It's, I don't know. I just, I find it, I find it a weird choice, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I think it has to do with, 
I mean, this is something we'll get into connections too about the filmmaker's attitude and, and, and approach and and uh, the type of of engagement with the with the footage of that has been left behind because it's a different type of engagement. Well, we're almost ready for connections because a lot of what I'm further thinking about this film is ways in which it really kind of comes into conversation with Grizzly Man. But I feel like we would be doing a disservice if we didn't at least touch on the soundtrack of this movie, which is uh, very into kind of like light, airy French pop. And uh, it kind of shapes a lot of the feather lightness and surfaceness and, and romanticism we're talking about like through its music and mm-hmm. uh, i'm curious what y'all make of the the soundtrack of this film i mean you get that but you also get the big ship by brian eno which is the sort of the most dramatic piece of music you could have <laughs> in a movie almost <laughs> to the point where where i'm not sure other movies have used it but it felt even kind of a little cliched you get a little little uh you get a little air in there you get air, you know, yeah night, air n- i was n- excited by the air yeah i'm an air fan well i yeah. think this i mean it also reminded me so much i mean if you talk about influences it's you know it's very wes anderson influenced as well you know i mean if you if you talk about yeah, I mentioned Cousteau earlier, which was kind of an inspiration for the life aquatic. You know, you could kind of kind of see you know the Anderson impact here, and some of the montage work, and the 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 use of these kind of cool songs and the soundtrack, and you know, just it just you know the images like like Maurice, you know, with his pipe. <laughs> You know, standing on set. It just feels like a Wes Anderson character is that would be a guy who uh, likes to be on TV and and, and smokes a pipe while he's uh, standing on on molten rock. I mean, that just that felt very. Uh, I, I don't know. It was, it was kind of you know cool to watch. Yeah, but at the same time, they're all wearing those life aquatic hats in like mm-hmm. every scene, and this a lot of this footage was shot a very long time ago, uh, and yet they're they're wearing those kind of like shapeless uh, I, I don't know what the name for them would be like the shapeless uh knit caps in bright colors um sometimes you see a, a team of volcanologists and they're all wearing those hats what did uh what did wes anderson know when he made life aquatic <laughs> about how scientists wear hats how that french, i, I uh, did fr- not know fr- french uh, scientists right french scientists and explorers it's uh i guess they all they all go to the same uh order out of the same catalog the same hat Lay, Lay Land's End or whatever. Pretty sad that I don't know the word, the, the French word for land or end. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's something that uh, Grizzly Man teaches us a great deal about. So I, I think we're going to move over to connections and, uh, and consider how these two films compare, both in the manner of uh, hat wear and in the matter of, you know, all of this other documentary and death stuff that we're talking about. We'll be right back. So now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and we talk about all the things we have in common, starting, as we say, with the hats. The hats are the most (laughs) important part. Why is it that both of these movies have a sequence where uh, somebody loses a hat? A kind of like artful and funny sequence where someone loses a hat? Yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, You know, uh, that's something that happens a lot at film festivals for me, too. It's like, oh this incredibly weird detail is in multiple things. I mean, I just saw a couple of films today for review that, that both kind of start in this very specific 
you know, in Paradise and both of the in, the in Paradise and both of the films look so much the same. It's just like wow, this is wild that they that, they, that all comes together. So I, I'm going to go ahead and chalk it up to uh, a happy coincidence there. A hat P. No, don't do it. Don't do it. No, he's already done it. Stop it. It's already too late. He's already done it. Both of these films also have a sequence where somebody is handed over a watch that's the survivor of a tragedy. Yeah. Like very similar watches um, in both cases. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, though, though, I think we can say that uh, a bear, uh, that watches will hold up better against bear attacks than uh, volcano <laughs> eruptions since the time stops. You know, I got to say, a, a watch company that creates a watch that survives a volcano eruption that 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 that, I, that has my business. I'm buying a I'm buying if a Seiko. You know, if the if a Seiko watch survives a volcanic eruption, uh, that, that's, I could, that's I my, could easily see a, like a very seventies ad with like lava flowing over Seiko watch and then somebody like chipping it out later and uh, and it's still running. Yeah. Just like like no dialogue until the end and then just the catchphrase, uh, whatever it is, yeah. takes a melton and keeps on ticking. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not gonna, but okay. You gotta, you, gotta work, you gotta work on that one. Leaving aside the, the, the trivial connections, although I have to say that the hat thing made me wonder to what degree Saradosa had actually watched Grizzly Man and and was using it as a model just because it seemed like such a random detail in a film that is that just feels so much like Grizzly Man in its choices in its in its narrative choices in its footage choices both of these films as as we kind of commented earlier about Grizzly Man are filmmakers framing filmmakers taking taking footage from people who were consciously making movies and reframing them into other movies but i i do kind of feel like it seems almost inevitable that Dosa would have like looked at Grizzly Man as at least a little bit of a model and she obviously isn't reproducing it slavishly given that she's got like little animated inserts and like this very like colorful uh, poetic narrative that the tone is different but it does just sort of feel like she's very aware of the earlier movie as she's making it yeah i mean i think honestly that is the strongest connection more than anything else is is the idea of sifting through hours and hours of the footage of someone who's no longer with us to try to piece together a story and uh, you know i i think it's it's kind of hard as a documentary filmmaker given that task not to at least think of of, of grizzly man particularly given that one loosely speaking was an environmentalist and the other other two were scientists but you know but but, but there is a sort of connection of, of people exploring nature right they have that in common as well well yeah people not just exploring nature but exploring a part of nature that other people didn't dare to mm-hmm. In some degrees, for for very common sense reasons, for going places that other people wouldn't go, acknowledging the danger involved, acknowledging, I think, in all cases, I talked a lot about Fire of Love uh, romanticizing the Crofts and their relationship and their their even their death. But the quotes that we get from them, much like the quotes from Timothy Treadwell, are also romanticizing death itself. Like all of them are kind of implying that that dying for a cause is the best kind of dying and that they would be willing to die in the pursuit of the things that they care about. Timothy Treadwell says over and over and over, I would die for these bears. I would die for these bears. And the Crofts say much the same 
without the sense of like we're protecting these volcanoes from anything. But they were all like very aware of the danger that they were in, at least verbally. Like they they all made a point of acknowledging it over and over, which kind of hangs like an irony over both of these films. Just like watching them say over and over and over, this is probably how we're going to die. And then knowing that this is how they died. There's kind of such a touching moment too in fire of love where we learn that sort of katya thought about you know just her husband wandering off and her never seeing him again you know I mean, this is such an interesting thought and and it is it is and of course also interesting that the different ways in which they they, they square up to the same fatalistic thing uh, conclusion which is that okay we're willing to die doing this and i think there's something there the crafts are much more open-eyed about that possibility and, 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 and prepare for it. I mean, the fact is they don't have, they choose not to have children. They don't, they, you know, this is their life. This is the, their, they, this is their passion. They both, they, they want to do this until the very, the very end. And they, they, and they're willing to, to go as to an edge that, that people who have, who are not as committed, who have things to worry about. If you, if you have a family to go back to, are you going to be out, as far into an active volcano as as the crafts, probably almost certainly you would not. So that's an interesting thing. But it, it, but to me, I mean, it's just you know the, what, what's missing, of course, from Fire of Love is is really the uniqueness of Grizzly Man, which is which is a tension between filmmaker and, and subject. In a sense that that Herzog is in a very contentious dialogue with the footage that he is sifting through and with the person that he is creating a portrait of that is not really the case in, in, in fire of love. I think, I think in fire of love, you just really get a sense of admiration. You know, you get a conceit uh, that is sort of trying, I think in an overly tidy way to deal with love and with, with passion and, and all of these things and how they kind of intersect in both the work and, and this relationship, this romance, this fire of love to me, that's just a, a, a much narrower, less rich documentary, uh, or less rich approach. Even though I think it, I think it's very effective as a you know cinematic experience. I think Herzog and Dozer are both in such interesting positions, though, because they're both tasked with telling the story of these people with footage they shot themselves, and with Treadwell's Grizzly Man, you know, say an alternate scenario, you know, alternate reality where where Treadwell lives and puts together this footage into something, it's going to look much different than what Herzog put together. And I, I don't know. I mean, we know that, you know, the crafts were filmmakers on top of everything else. And, and I, we don't really see enough of their films they made to know how different this is. But it's obviously, you know, and it's not, it's not clear to me how much of this footage has never been seen before, how much it turned up in previous films. But it's obviously not the way they would tell their story either. But yeah, I think I, th I think you're right. The big difference is there is an engagement and, and a desire to figure out who Treadwell was and, and and untangle some of the contradictions in a way that the craft story just does not allow for or at least suggest as easily. I think one difference there is that the, we do see the Crofts on in various media appearances, um, little slices of kind of how they portrayed themselves in public spheres where they were talking to, you know, to people like us, to uh, the punters rather than to other scientists, to people that they had to present their their 
beliefs to in a fairly surfacey way. And we we get the sense for kind of how they controlled their media appearances and how they they courted public interest and how they characterized themselves the narrative that they drew around themselves. I think we get a lot more of that than we do with with Timothy. We we get with Grizzly Man, we get that one short sequence of him on David Letterman, which I would love to see more of because it's maybe the one place in the film where he's placed in an environment where he he's controlling the narrative the, the degree that he can, but in a sphere that somebody else is controlling, you know, in a sphere that we're all very familiar with. I would like to have seen more of like, how does Timothy Treadwell make himself into a, a Letterman guest? You know, how does this guy that like goes on and on about his ego warriorness when he's alone and make up uh, narratives about how he's alone? Like, while there's literally somebody handling the camera that he's shooting himself with to talk about being alone. How does that person integrate with the world of of a David Letterman talk show appearance? In all of these cases, just I think like seeing how they appeared in the media public in that sphere um, is really interesting. But we get more of it with the Crofts, and I think it's more telling in that regard. Well, they become characters, though, right? I mean, as soon as you submit yourself to be, you know, on a show, for example, on on, on David Letterman or or on a the various shows that the crafts were on, you know, then you, you do lose some of that control and you become a character. I mean, Letterman was better than anybody at taking, you know, a, a human being of an eccentric. You think about people like, you know, Harmony Crine or Crispin Glover, other people that, that he had on the show, you know, and I think Treadwell is kind of a, a perfect example of somebody that Letterman, who Letterman liked to have on, and like Letterman is in control of that narrative, is in control of that situation, is control is in control of the perception that we have of Treadwell in a way that Treadwell is. I mean, Treadwell has no control over that situation. He is he is there for, yeah, you know, as part of the the show. He's a, he's part of the entertainment, um, which is much different than than what he's able to do, you know, by himself on camera in the wilds of Alaska where, where, you know, the, the bears can interject. So I, I find that, I find that interesting. And the other, the other thing I wanted that I was thinking about is that you know, one strong choice that fire of love makes is that it doesn't bring in other voices in the same way that grizzly man does. I mean, grizzly, with grizzly man, you do have Herzog going out and meeting with various people and getting different accounts and giving you kind of a fuller picture around Treadwell. I mean, I think that Fire of Love is really trying to do as much as it can with the footage and, and, and making letting that footage try, kind of dictate where it's going to go. And so, and so as a result of that, maybe we don't get the kind of science that we want, you know, that we, we get the footage, you know, and when, you, when you're dealing with footage of them on site or you're dealing with footage of them on TV, it's not going to be the same as is you know the information you might get in a, in a dissertation or you, the information you might get you know from su some French person who's able to tell us directly the impact that the crafts had on the field of volcanology and, and and how important they were and what they what revelations they had that were really important to our understanding of volcanoes. That's a really good point. Just the the lack of contextualization in in Fire of Love, specifically through the medium of like, let's go to Talking Heads and and ask them about these people. 
And maybe it's a stronger film for it, given that that's one of my least favorite things about uh, Grizzly Man. But uh, like to my mind, one of the things that's kind of missing in in both of these movies, maybe in part as a direct result of that, is a bigger sense of who these people were when they weren't self-mythologizing on camera. Like, we get a little bit from Treadwell's friend Kathleen about how he spent his winters. Like, he he spent the summers camping among bears and, and talking to foxes and talking to the cameras. And that seems to have been the part of his life that he considered important. But there was still, like, half a year every year where he couldn't be doing that and he, he had to go elsewhere. And we only get the tiniest snippet of like who he was, you know, half of the rest of the year or more. And in Fire of Love, it's kind of the same thing. It's here we are on camera, like in in the moment of like looking at these just spectacular lava spews or like this God, the, the underwater footage uh, of a, a like a volcanic outbreak. Just so incredibly startling. But who were they the rest of the time? I, I really feel like I would like to know more about them in both cases. And wondering about the mechanics of how the Crofts got around the world, how they how they funded this world hopping adventure that they were on is part of that. But just like wondering who they were in their downtime uh, is is the other part of it. Since both of these movies are kind of romanticizing the part where they pursue their passions, I understand why they don't want to de-romanticize by focusing on the part where they didn't. But I still just want to know like a little bit about how these people live their lives. But I, I, I you may want to know, and I'm, I'm curious as, as well, but I, I will say that I appreciate filmmakers who make choices who you know what i mean like i i mean it's a it is a decision to not have this information on there and by not including it you you know enhance what you you know your approach i mean you stick with the conceit that you have for the for the movie that you think is best for the movie and if in this case it leaves out a certain amount of detail that you're craving so be it because i think if you if you start to include that information if you open up things a little bit more if you start to include say talking heads I mean, that's a choice, and that's a choice that in some ways weakens and potentially significantly weakens the you know overall impact of, of, of the film, which is to really focus on this footage and to give you um, let that footage do as much of the talking as possible. Yeah, uh, I mean, you have a point, and I see that point. Just in the in the case of Fire of Love in particular, I guess what I'm saying then is I see what the conceit is here, and I don't think it's enough. It's just trite. It's unfortunate. I, I think it, it, it's the love angle of it that makes it feel like, okay, that's just cute, right? And, you know, it's just like, oh, well, they they died next to each other and there's footage. I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. It's, but it's all very, it's very simple. I think maybe the problem there, that the reason that it, it feels a little bit, uh, a little bit too trite or a little bit too pat is just the, like the artificiality of that, that narrative compared with just the, the rawness of the footage of the volcanoes themselves. You know, you've, you've got the, conversation about the like the raw untrammeled power of the earth and how it's you know it can't be predicted it can't be held back it's going to do what it's going to do and we just have to live on the planet and deal with it and then by comparison like that love story i suppose i can see a world where that contrast would be the the tension that you found in grizzly man and that you're missing here but i just don't think it's it's framed that way 
I'm circling back to something just because I, it was gnawing at me uh, because when I mentioned when we were talking about the soundtrack before we talked about the big the big ship the Brian Eno song I kept thinking why does it strike me as kind of cliched and here are the films in which it has appeared recently it's in the documentary Val it's in the film Roadrunner which we we covered on the show uh, it's in the Lovely Bones it's in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl it is uh, it is a much it's a much used song in the last half decade so. Perhaps that's why that was sticking with me. That's totally off topic, but I was it was gnawing at me, so I, I wanted to get that in there. Well, uh, as penance, Keith, I'm going to ask you about something that I know kind of kind of stuck with you because you you intimated that you were going to end the first episode of uh, this this pairing by singing the little song that comes up at the end mm-hmm. of um, of Grizzly Man. What do you make of the music in Grizzly Man by comparison? We we talked about uh, Fire of Love and its music, but that song and how it's used at the end of Grizzly Man is also a big choice. How, how did you feel about that? What do you make of it? I mean, I love that song and the context there kind of made me want to seek out some more that he's a traditional Western uh, singer. I forget the the name of the singer, but uh, it is a perfect way to end the film. His pilot friend throwing in Timothy Treadwell's name into the, to the lyrics is, is, is like, yeah, I mean, you know, it is a romanticizing moment to lump him in with, with these sort of these, these cowboy and the, the dying frontier tradition, but is it, wrong to do that either i mean you know as foolish as he ultimately was um perhaps not i mean i think it's a really apt choice and and just in general i'm I'm a huge fan of richard thompson who doesn't seem like an intuitive choice to soundtrack this movie uh he does who does the score but i think it's really nicely done it's it's an understated moody guitar driven score that just kind of is not it, it's helps set a mood, but it's not intrusive in any way. So I, I think it's it's an important element in, in that film, and perhaps one that's kind of kind of in the background to the point where you don't even think about it that much. But I, but I do I do love that score. Yeah, that song at the end of Grizzly Man. I, I was talking about this earlier when we were when we were off mic, but uh, it's a Don Edwards song. Every time I rewatch Grizzly Man, I get to that point where the pilot is sort of singing a half beat off with the song. And I find it so grating, just so irritating. Like, I want to hear the song, which which seems very pretty and primal in a way with its little uh, sort of coyote yip vocalization that the singer is doing. And then he gets to that point where he's singing about all of the things that have gone and passed and he he puts his friend's name into the mix. And I'm right there with you. I like maybe, yeah, maybe it's a sentimental choice. Maybe it's a, an artificial choice, but it's something that he's doing in the moment and that he feels. And I think whenever somebody who is significant in our lives pass on, we have to think about the world in those terms. Like we're past the era of that person. Like that person is gone from the world. And just that one line that, that he sings, I think, brings that across so clearly. You know, maybe Timothy Treadwell was not iconic in the way of, of some of the other things that he's singing about, but he was a very specific and individual person in the world, and his era is gone with him. Like, I, I think that's a, a really effective and powerful little moment at the end. Yeah, I, I, just generally speaking, I do like how both films ultimately land on on a place of admiration for their subjects um, uh, you know in, in, in respect for how they live their lives and how their lives ended too i mean i think that i think there's a dignity to that in a way and and it's something that it's something they anticipated and then sort of sort of tragically ha- happened in in both cases but i think 
for Herzog and and for Sarah Dose, there's just there's just a there's this admiration for people who 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 live their lives to the fullest and, and to, to you know go off and do th- something do things that nobody uh, would think to do or have the have the, the the will to do and to be willing to die for it and you know and in the case you know I guess in Fire of Love died poetically for it I, I like that I mean I think the film I like that in terms of like the tone of of the movies to kind of land in that place. Well, I got two questions about that. One is we covered whether y'all think Timothy Treadwell really did understand that he was placing himself in fatal danger uh, on a regular basis or whether that was just part of a drama he was spinning up for himself that he felt immune to. Do you feel like the Crofts similarly? I guess I, I touched on this in my intro, but to me, at least it seems like they're a little more pragmatic about understanding that that they're doing something like lethally dangerous. And the fact that friends of theirs have died in the field doing exactly what they're doing, uh, the fact that they they get so close up to the volcanoes makes me think that they really were actually aware that they could and probably would die doing this. It, it feels different from Timothy Treadwell's case, even though it manifests exactly the same way throughout uh, throughout both of these films with the the constant talking about it to the the camera. Does it land differently for you here? Well, yeah, I think one difference is they're, they're just not lost in a fantasy world. And you're right. I think they are. And they know they're on the front lines and they, and they have seen people in the same field uh, die as well. And, and they know I think they're smart enough to know the chances they're taking. Well, I shouldn't say smart, but I think they're informed enough to know the chances they're taking, whereas Treadwell just is not as well. But I mean, I think you make a better case for the nobility of, of, of their end than you can can for Treadwells just because they are working to some for some greater greater good in a way that he only thought he was oh absolutely and, and, and demonstrably their work was used for the greater good i mean that's a that's a much better way to go than to kind of delude yourself into thinking you're the protectors of these of of these animals so that ultimately you know when you're when you're actually not <laughs> uh so that, yeah there's a there's a huge huge difference between those deaths in, in that respect at the same time, I mean, a lot of a lot of the times when they were talking about how they were probably going to die around volcanoes, they're talking to the media. And it did kind of make me wonder if if part of that <laughs> just remind me to never, never get into an interview and uh, predict about how something like unhealthy or, or foolish in my lifestyle is going to kill me because I, I don't want that to be the clip at the top of my obit. I do wonder if to some degree you feel they were... I don't know, like using that using that danger to draw attention uh, to their work, not necessarily at all in a bad way. But, you know, these were people who knew that that they were dealing with some very dangerous things that public officials in particular did not want to acknowledge the danger of. And they wanted to get their message out to the world was talking about how likely they were to die doing what they loved away in part of like attracting media attention, attracting, you know, it's a, it's a good hook, I guess, is what I'm aiming at for a journalist. It's the kind of quote that you know you'd want to lead with because because people are going to keep reading or keep watching. And they seem to have been pretty savvy about media appearances and, and media portrayals. Were they doing that on purpose, do you think? 
it doesn't hurt. I mean, it's it's good. <laughs> it's certainly good promotion. I don't think people show up to see Evil Can Evil just you know just stroll along the highway. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they want to see. Today, they I'm going to walk he's out half there. a mile through the desert. Yeah, they want to know he's out there jumping over Snake River Canyon or whatever it was he did. You know, so I, th- I think that's certainly a way to stir interest. Uh, and there was a sense, you know, there that you do get a sense that that became a part of the job and, and that he was more inclined to do it, to go out and, and, and promote the, the, the little mom and pop business they had going than, than Katya was, although perhaps she was the one. And it's funny, you know, there's illusion. You, you mentioned Natasha, but there's also allusion to it in the film that she is in some ways the more daring of, of, of the two. But yeah, I, I do. I, I do think that it's a good way to stir interest to make sure people know what you're doing dangerous things Though obviously they're not doing dangerous things just to stir interest. Unlike Evil Can Evil. See, it all comes full circle. It does all come full circle. I don't know that the movie does acknowledge that she's the most, the more daring one. What we get instead in the movie is that quote, which I found really funny. I think it's intended to be funny, where she talks about how her husband weighs twice what she does. Mm-hmm. So she's always glad to have him go first. Because <laughs> if a, a given piece of, of rock will support his weight, she knows she'll be fine. <laughs> And then at the same time, she also talks about how, like, if he goes, she wants to go. She wants to die in the same incident that he dies in if it comes to that. Which, you know, I I think this movie maybe forces a little too much of a, a romantic narrative, but that's definitely her romanticizing the possibility of her own death or the possibility of of one of them losing the other uh, and having to go on without them. It's uh, it's a really interesting and telling quote, I think. It really seems to me that the way in which they died and the manner in which, you know, it was discovered and the, it's described... It almost feels almost retroactively a way to justify the whole conceit of the film and the and the choice of narrator. It's just like there was a poetry to that death that the film is trying to express. Like it almost feels like it was started with that and kind of worked back in terms of, you know, the conceit of the movie. One of the differences between this, these movies that I think is really telling and really interesting is that... The Herzog signals really early in the film that Treadwell died and specifically that he was killed by a bear. It doesn't happen in the moment. It literally our our first shot of Treadwell is him talking about how he's among these things that might kill him at any moment. And every single time I rewatch Grizzly Man, I expect there to just be like text appear on screen saying this is Timothy Treadwell a year before he was killed by a bear because, you know, it's just such an obvious documentary juxtaposition of the irony of what you're hearing and what actually happened. But he does tell you very early on uh, that Timothy was eaten by a bear. And then over the course of the film, we get a whole lot of very, very specific information about how that happened, about how horrible it was, about how much he suffered, about how his and Amy's bodies were torn apart, about how they were recovered and had to be sorted through, like a lot of very grisly stuff. I had to look up how the Crofts died because the movie barely even touches on it. It touches on the fact that they did die, but not how. It doesn't mention, except in a credit at the, at the end of the movie and a dedication, that 41 other people uh, studying a volcano, uh, including journalists that were there and firefighters that were there, like died in the same accident. Now, hold on, hold it on. I want to interrupt you here. You know what would be amazing? If they were eaten by bears. 
Were they lava bears? <laughs> exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> we also just don't get that very, very early in the movie. The tension between everything you're seeing and knowing how they died comes so much later in Fire of Love than in Grizzly Man. It's just a very different approach to the tension between what's being said and what happened. And there's so much more of a tension between the feeling of dying in the way that you predicted and how it actually all went down. So I don't know. Well, what do you what do you make of the difference between the way the two films handle the facts of the deaths involved? I'm uncomfortable with it, though. I do. I, I really love the opening of Grizzly Man where it's like Timothy Treadwell and then it lists his date of birth and date of death, like the day he died. Like, I don't know what, what those were, but like that's the first title that we see so we know instantly that that he is not no longer with us i i really uh, admire the upfrontness of that 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 felt very herzog not to be to be as frank as possible about it but you know i can see i can also see the justification for fire of love and the way it handles things as well and and is just telling the story you know more or less in chronology and and uh, it just gets to that point and that's that's where it ends and and it's this and then you know after this and it becomes you know more powerful because we we have that accumulation of experience and of their relationship and all that stuff has been has been something we've been th- thinking about and been introduced to throughout the the movie and so it's kind of the right placement for that you know kind of information to come across so i i, I think it's i think it's there are good choices made in both movies it's respectful, but also for as much as the the you know gory details we get of, of Treadwell, I think it's kind of respectful to know exactly what happened uh, in a stra- in a strange way because there his end was not inevitable. There was a particular turn of events that you know if he if he picked up a certain amount of smarts around bears, he sort of you know underestimated the you know willingness of, of this of this strange bear from the interior or whatever the Herzog's phrase is to turn on him so I think it's 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 always it's kind of important to know the exact details if if, if it's if not necessarily a somewhat grim corner you know excitedly you know talking about the garbage bags that their bodies were hauled out in it's still uh it seems it felt necessary to that film for for some reason. Well, that's quite an image to leave our discussion of Grizzly Man and uh, Fire of Love on. Sorted out pieces of bodies in garbage bags. But I I guess that's what you get when you specifically go into a pairing to talk about people who knew how they were going to die, or at least said they knew how they were going to die, and managed to achieve it through the obsession that they would not stop pursuing no matter what. Uh, Grizzly Man is available on DVD. It's available through most digital rental services. It's also streaming free or with ads on services like Canopy, Tubi, Roku, Pluto TV, and Redbox, where uh, Keith has just informed me the David Letterman clip that I was talking about earlier in the show does not exist in those versions uh, for rights reasons. Apparently, it's been replaced with a, a clip of Timothy Treadwell talking about how he'd never kill a bear. So if you're watching this for the first time recently and wondering what the heck I'm talking about and think I'm making it up, that's why. Uh, if you're streaming it on any of those services, you're seeing a different version than the version that I just rewatched on a disc from 2005. 
Uh, Fire of Love, meanwhile, opened in limited release in theaters on July 6th. It's going to be slowly expanding nationwide throughout July. Uh, I'm told that by the end of July, it will have reached its distribution peak throughout the country. So if it's not near you yet, maybe soon. We're back with our streamlined version of Your Next Picture Show, where we're having just one host make a recommendation for your viewing pleasure. Uh, This week, a really natural pairing would have been Werner Herzog's Into the Inferno, which is a documentary that squares the circle between this week's pairings. It's specifically about volcano chasers, and it features Maurice and Katja Croft as two of Herzog's subjects. Unfortunately, none of us had time to see it before this taping, but Scott has another Herzog movie he thinks is essential viewing as part of this cluster of related movies. Scott? Yeah, I wanted to recommend a, a movie that Herzog made shortly after Grizzly Man. That's that's Encounters at the End of the World. Um, this is a documentary in which Herzog uh, travels to another extreme, uh, in this case, the South Pole, into you know McMurdo Station, which in Antarctica, which is, has a population of about 1,000 people. A lot of uh, scientists and dreamers and Herzog types live there, and, and it's a very episodic film in which in which Herzog has the the freedom and the funding to you know visit with all sorts of interesting people and delve into different you know into scientific subjects and and make observations Herzog's you know the types of observations that only Herzog can make and and it's and it's him fully present in the movie even more so than he is in in Grizzly Man he's right in front of the camera he is you know your tour guide into this place which is you know and of course he collects you know, all of this, you know, inc- incredible footage of the South Pole and, and uh, you know, and he likes to wander beyond McMurdo Station as well. He's, to him, that's almost uh, too civilized a place. He has to kind of continue to push the boundaries. But the, the moment I always think about with relation to Grizzly Man, that the, the big Herzog, Herzog moment has to do with, you know, his kind of implicit, a moment where he sort of, he sort of implicitly criticizes March of the Penguins, which is a movie that is super guilty of anthropomorphizing animals by, you know, comparing the the habits, uh, the mating habits of, of emperor penguins to humans and their, these incredible journeys they go on in the name of love. And I mean, that, that kind of stuff is just, you know, Herzog can't handle that kind of thing. That's just not his, his bag. And so he has this scene in Encounters of the End of the World where he follows the, where, where a penguin just wanders off into the abyss like gets out of line with all the other penguins doesn't do what he's supposed to do is not following you know the 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 the, his instincts is just kind of just wandering off into oblivion and uh uh, that's just uh, you know a perfect magical herzog moment and uh, you know among many in this uh film that i i think is quite good encounters at the end of the world yeah, that's a that's a moment I remember too. Uh, um, that's the the penguin has kind of lost lost its mind in, in some ways. Yes. Um, there there is there is a sequel of sorts, by the way, uh, to that film in the sense that uh, Herzog turns up as a documentary filmmaker uh, in the film uh, Penguins of Madagascar, just as, just as voice. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, the encounters at the end of the world's cinematic universe. Yeah, the penguin part is really the only part that 
that really stuck with me about that movie because it, once again, this was not long after I started noticing the pattern of Herzog's films and the idea that he would focus on this penguin whose instincts somehow went awry and how it's wandering off to it to certain death. Yes. You know, just completely at, at odds with with all of its fellows just kind of seems like the like somewhere out there. There's a little penguin version of Werner Herzog that's following that penguin with a camera because that's the kind of penguin that he's obsessed with. The fact that the kind of people that Werner Herzog is obsessed with in the the human world also exist in the penguin world <laughs> also exist yeah. in the animal kingdom. Yeah, is just insane. Yep, it's great. An, an iconoclastic penguin. <laughs> the Klaus Kinsey of, of penguins. And you reviewed uh, Encounters at the End of the World for the AV Club uh, back in the day when it when it first came out back in what 2000, 2007, 2008? Something like that. Yeah, I, I reviewed it. And there have been like 3,000 uh, Werner Herzog films since then, and none of us are fully caught up, <laughs> no. unfortunately. No, it's hard. He's busy. Very busy. Well, you know, he's got a lot of uh, wandering penguins to cover over the course of the years. Also has a baby Yoda to track down. <laughs> Does he? Didn't he get... Did he get uh, didn't he get... Uh, yeah. yeah. That, that, no spoilers. Really? Can't, I can't spoil like the Mandalorian on here. I guess I guess it's I guess it, I guess it would be people would be blindsided by they've got, they know they know it's a spoiler podcast for certain things but then I come and hit them with Mandalorian spoilers and it's like come on man that's a cheap shot that's a cheap shot well, you can find Werner Herzog's Encounters at the End of the World on pretty much all of the usual digital streaming services. If you want to check that out, it's available for rental on Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Apple TV, uh, you know, pretty much all the usual suspects. You cannot find it by wandering out into the Antarctic and heading off into the wilds in a random direction. Yeah, the blockbuster closed out there. <laughs> So that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Keith, want to set us up for our episodes releasing on July 26th and August 2nd? Oh, hey, it's me, not Keith, a.k.a. Genevieve from the future, recovered from my misadventures among the wild corgi, and here to fill you in on our next pairing, which we had not yet confirmed by the time of the recording that you are now listening to. Uh, at that point, we knew that we wanted to do a pairing based on Jordan Peele's Nope, a film about which we knew almost nothing because we had yet to see it. And that is unfortunately still the case as of right now as I am recording this. But we are so confident that Nope will give us plenty to talk about. We're choosing a companion film sight unseen, based on our understanding that it is at least partly an alien invasion story. So we're taking our best guess and pairing it with the granddaddy of all alien invasion movies, 1953's War of the Worlds. Will this blind pairing be out of this world, or will we crash land? Tune in next week to find out. For now, we welcome your feedback on Grizzly Man, Fire of Love, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and come talk to us at Patreon, where our occasional newsletters for subscribers have been inviting people to discuss things like whether there's any wrong way to see a movie. Stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kfip3000, where I post all my work. You can find uh, my writing at places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, and a place called The Reveal, which is a Substack newsletter that my good friend, what's his, what's his name again? Scott Tobias and I uh, uh, do together. Uh, it's at thereveal.substack.com. It's got reviews. It's got you know features. It's got all kinds of, of fun stuff. It's got your, it's got your review of uh, Fire of Love. 
At this, well, I haven't written it yet, but yes, it, it will. will. By the time, will, by the time this will post, have, yeah. it will have aged by the time uh, <laughs> the, uh, the listeners hear this. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm at the reveal. I'm also um, you know on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times, in uh, Vulture, and Guardian, uh, Rolling Stone, other fine publications. Tasha. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, although I've been very quiet there of late. Uh, Twitter is a little overwhelming at times, guys. <laughs> and you can find my work at polygon.com, where I am the film and streaming editor. And boy, do I have a lot of things to say about Thor Love and Thunder. We'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> Our absent uh, producer, Genevieve Kosky, is on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. She's also the TV editor over at Vulture. You can find her there. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. 